<clears throat> so as we go on, I, I couldn't believe coming out and finding all the silk that they tied on. So during this year, um, the classes Jan would teach, they came up and she and Amy and the other women would move up here on the land down in the lower garden in all the different seasons of cold and ice and darkness and light. And with their prayerful life and ceremony toward what humanity was to do in the midst of all of this. So <clears throat> we're resplendent with this all, all around us here, all those beautiful silks that have been dyed and utilized in prayer and, and movement and dance. Yeah. So I'm going to go on with time, and before I do, I just want to express my gratitude. You know, Joseph and Amy made something available. There are occurrences which happen in human life, but um, when someone is willing to have them happen where they are responsible for, like at their home or their land, then the meeting we're talking about today already happened among us. So in my speaking about what Mary brought forward, asking of the different people who were servants at the wedding, they weren't wedding guests, they weren't the family of the bride and groom. They were the ones who were serving that occurring. And through those people and that woman and her son, something came to pass. So when we came up here, I came up here about 25 years, no longer, about 30 years ago, 29 to 30 years ago for the first time in Montpelier to do something. And I was aware that there was something happening in this area like being asked of this area that I I didn't understand but I was aware something's being asked of humanity here. Just like you can go to a, a town where it's very easy to teach meditation or I could go to a, a church where it's very easy to pray. I've spoken at a lot of big conferences and some are easy and some are hard. Depends on where you are, what can be spoken of and the care or openness that's possible. So I was aware something was being asked of the collective of humanity up here. I, I didn't propose to understand it, but I noted it. And then I was invited back up, and then back up, and then we started the classes here. And I would be shown in the levels of consciousness I, in which I dwell a certain assignment of something being called forward that would happen in this group of people. And it would be so touching to me because I understood Oh, if that critical mass is done through this collective of people, it's everywhere. And so I mentioned to somebody the other day how Margaret Mead had said that. You know, never, never doubt that, that what can happen through... No, go ahead, I don't know the quote exactly by heart, but... can be done through a small group of people. That's, that's how it has always been. Or, and so it is how it's always been. It isn't one person. There, there is one person, but there's the meeting of it by another person. And then a collective. And then, you know, in, in, in biology, it's called the hundredth monkey effect in popular yeah, literature because, because in the island of Madagascar, there, were, there was a kind of monkey being studied. And it all of a sudden, the animal biologists saw a monkey pick up a rock and break a nut. They'd never seen that behavior before, and then they studied it, and pretty soon one monkey was watching and would copy it, 
the, the baby of the one who first done it, copied it. And soon that whole little group of monkeys all used a tool to, you know, work with their food. And then maybe a decade later, on an island nearby with no communication physically among the monkeys, in another group, unrelated, the biologists watched him look down, pick up a rock and do the same thing. They had never seen it before. So they were aware something happened in time and space between two discrete creatures. And they called it the 100th monkey effect, but they didn't propose to understand it. So what's occurred here, and what I am so grateful for, is in the word that we use in English called faith, or promise, something has occurred. So Amy and Joseph have a promise to God and to one another, and to some of their loved ones, and they, they offered that to me. And then here we are. And Jan and Steve have that to one another, and their marriage and their family. And they offered that to me and to their beloved friends, Joseph and Amy, and here we are. And we extrapolate that out to various people. And so because of that embodied promise, I would be given a piece of work to do. And most of my colleagues around the world, many of whom are very known to millions and millions of people, would communicate with me inwardly in prayer. There's no way you can do this. And I would just be aware that it was being done. In, and I was aware, if they're my sisters and brothers, they're being shown the way through the Third World War because I'm not going to do anything but this. Like, no matter what happens. I don't mean that I was being stubborn. I simply understood what in Islam is called one's portion. This was my portion. This was our portion here. And so Amy and Joseph and Jen and Steve and Ann Embricht and her husband Terry, who've moved up here recently, and their children did not fail what was asked of us together. Water into wine. Right? And, and who is sipping that wine? The whole human race. So in Ann's children, or Jan and Steve's daughter Alexandra and her husband Mo, something is being born in them that I do understand as a mystic. It's not born in me, but I get to be a grandmother of it. Isn't that incredible? You see, if you feel that. So if we have Cedar turn to us, or we have, you know, your children, Benny Coy turns to us, they understand this. And I would say they knew that we would not fail them. Because in them is the portion of what is next, that part of eternity. So this is what I'm so grateful for, because in the work I do, I understood, oh, the room at the inn is offered fully for all of mankind and all of these children through the understanding Joseph and Amy have and Jan and Steve have. I mean, what love? What love? So there's no way to thank you. It's like, uh, because all, no one will know our names. It's not about our names. It's But every child on the earth can actually experience the this, this space and time of which we're speaking because we were able to remember it, become it, fulfill it, and call it forward. Right? 
So whenever you face anything, I would call this innocence. You come forward with your innocence, and out of that is the composition of the music, the poem, the prayer, the holding of the baby, the naming of one's child, mm -hmm. the caretaking of the elder. So most of what comes in is we haven't known how to caretake one's innocence, and so we haven't. But when we do, we always know what to do. Right? The water is always turned into wine. And if the other person is hostile because they're frightened or they're negligent or they're just accustomed to not being present and awake, we can be compassionate toward their lack of understanding but not tolerant of entering it. So historically, innocence would have been the victim of the dominant force. Right? So one had to teach one's children be enough of a warrior to kill, or you might be killed. But I would say now, be enough of the warrior that you are paying attention to the water that has been turned into wine. And then your cells, as they open up into the day, will be of heaven on earth, and you will always know what to do. So when the other person is being hostile, they're just going, I'm turning to history, somebody's going to win this war, and you go, we're not fighting. You're going to be my enemy. You go, no, I, you're not my enemy. And I'm not your enemy. So this would be the first time as a mystic I have been able to embody that as reality for everyone. And what you'd watch me go through was the willingness to suffer for that sake, right? How could I not do that if I understood this? So physicists have been talking about this for about a hundred years, and they would say the point is time. There's a beautiful book we were talking about it the other evening of a book called The End of Time about philosophy and physics. And Krishnamurti met with a man who was a physicist, and he, Thomas, David, David I always call him the wrong name, David Bohm, who was a really unusual human being, most physicists are, I guess most of us are, but, but physicists notoriously are because they often are trying to go to the part of the soul that includes brilliance but includes the next moment. And most humans are avoiding the next moment. But the physicist wants to find how does space, how does this function in the next moment so they're already out ahead of us in time. They have, they have that, that warriorship or that courage. So David Bohm started studying, which has been spoken of in many cultures in many ways, the idea that when we come together, something happens through time where the witness and, and the one being witnessed occur as one. Right? They're one, but they're two. So he would study the movement of grace through two people. He would study it as a physicist or mathematician. I would call him a mystic, but, but the name of it in his languaging was as a physicist or mathematician. So he would watch how oneness would occur, yet it would be two people. And what actually occurs is matter begins to exist in that relationship. So other people, from physicists to psychologists to scientists and doctors, would say, when the, when the observer is present 
and the observed are present, it changes the molecules of what's in existence physically. Right? They can actually measure that. So if we walk into a situation and there's a human being and we are with them and we are willing to be awake or present, we call forward heaven through the person and ourselves and then we enact it. Whatever he says, do. Right? The, the words of Mary. Whatever he says, do. And then we are of heaven on earth together. Not just because Mary says so, but we could find other places in history where a woman has called out to a man, please come, the baby is coming. Please help me, my mother is dying, come sit with us now. And the man knows to come. There are people who say, I'm not coming now, why should I come now? How do you know what you're talking about? There are people who go, how would the woman know? It's only a woman, I will dominate the woman. Or the woman would control the man. I'm not going to listen to you. You men are so violent. But there's always the quality that in the X chromosome is the receptivity, and in the Y chromosome is another gift that the X chromosome doesn't have. And we've always caused war with that between ourselves, among ourselves, among societies. So we're at a point where in the younger people, there is a maturity capable of being a warrior beyond fighting. And that's happening. So the physicists have named it for about a hundred years. And you can find it in I mean, different pieces of literature and science and, and cosmology. And what occurs is when you come to something and you've come out from Plato's cave and you wanted to be in the sunlight of heaven in an experience, you actually are present with what heaven is doing in the flower or in you or another human being, or that which is coming in time now in a baby, right? Or in the forest, or in the stars. And then there's a quality of wonder or awe because we all then are students of heaven, right? So we are students of heaven receiving it, and then as we receive it, we embody this principle where we share what we're, the reception between us. And a veritable symphony arises of heaven on earth. So that's where we are now, that we're beyond warfare. We're at that place. So in young people, the silence of that, and then the, what's called the, in, in mysticism, the music of the spheres, that is so it's almost like the conductor in heaven tapped the baton and went, are we ready? So any of you with children under the age of 40, are, are they ready? Are they ready? So they've been out there going, are we going to have a world war? Is dad going to be killed? What's going to happen to me? What, what are we? It's crazy out there. Mom, you don't understand. I go, uh, the child understood. Will there be a world war? Will there not? And all the hatred we've had of people judging a lot of the QAnon movement the QAnon movement has largely been a group of people who knew if the world fell, they had to be like Churchill. People thought Churchill was a complete, ridiculous human being. You know, and he was his own man. He had very strong viewpoints. And when the World War arose, there was something in him that understood a certain posture of behavior 
we could have gone a different way. Our world map could be defined a different way and be more in a Russian style or a German style or a South African style or a Egyptian style, but it isn't. But whatever the portion was given to Churchill to do, he stood in a singular way, Roosevelt stood in a singular way, and then the world moved in a certain manner, partly with them as observers and that which was being observed. So in all the socioeconomic and political arguments and religious arguments of the last maybe 40 years, various people took positions preparing for the war and what the debris of the earth would look like if we went into a really savage fight, which would have been something to behold and for a number of reasons didn't happen. So now instead of all the judging of one another from uh, political parties to um, kind of the fear of the anxiety in, in a 12 or 16-year-old young woman or a 30-year-old young woman, there's the quality of, you mean I could come out now? My fiancé and I might have a child? We didn't know if he even wanted a child the way the world is. Was he wise? Yes. Was she wise in her anxiety? Yes. Are they wise to want a child now? Yes. Were they wise to maybe not want one or be terrified to have one two years ago? Yes. See, all of these experiences that were so intuitive in all kinds of different people were clear radar signals of what was going on out here in the world. And much of humanity was hurting and very confused. So if we go to the physicists now, they wanted to know when time in how we study it historically comes to an end, what happens? So Krishnamurti, or if we go to, so if we go to Krishnamurti and, and, and uh, David Baum, David Baum? David Baum. I always call him Thomas, <coughs> Thomas Baum. So Jetta Krishnamurti and, 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 and David Baum, their conversations, or Einstein in his conversations with Rabindranath Tagore from India, who is this extraordinary writer and philosopher, and then conversations John Nash had with people, including me, those qualities of meeting where they would find a place where the mind does not end, where consciousness goes on, they would find, oh, it's not just about space, it's about something happening in time when we're not studying the linear history of who we are, but a different understanding of a quantum time, a cosmic time, a larger time. And some of your people like Eckhart Tolle will talk about the current moment, the present moment, now, that everything is now. Thich Nhat Hanh will talk about the current breath, and the next breath, and staying present in what is now. But what we have to add to that is, rather than just studying the past, what do we do as we face the future? Okay, And so a great deal of the planning, when we were so argumentative in warfare, was about who got all the possessions, or who was very successful in power and greed. Not in life, not in beauty, not necessarily in the gifts we leave for posterity, but in the idea of 
almost an armoring through possession against warfare from anywhere. And then we would transmit that on to our children. So they would go into the continuing battle of kind of fighting through our kids or possessing things through our kids. You know, my child has this, and mine does this. So instead of that spiritual materialism, if we go beyond the warfare, the job for middle-aged to older people now would be to enable the young people through our interrelationships to use their acute sensitivity to be the instruments of heaven they are as a civilization is created. What would they like it to look like? How would they dream it? How would they think it? How would they cause it? How would they love so that it could be embodied through their bodies everywhere on the earth? So if you told me 300 years ago, women all over the world would be educated, we would eradicate these diseases. There would be clean drinking water. Most people would have roofs over their, their heads and warm shoes and adequate abilities to heat their homes or have nutrition. They would live to this age in a general manner. People would think you were ridiculous, crazy. It's not possible. Not for a girl. There won't be a warrior, so I won't have to fight. So then the men here have not had to be in a physical war, although men in our generations have, but not millions and millions and millions of men. Not raising a boy, not having four boys so three of them could be killed in a war. It's my, my great-grandfather and his brother came from France, but the other two brothers stayed. So if one was killed in the war, the other was still there to take care of the family, right? Uh, four boys. We'll have four boys. If two are sacrificed, at least the two that go to America might live. And then one could come back after the war to take care of the family, if the family were still alive. That was actually the decision that was made before they packed their small trunk and came. That was actually a conscious decision made by my ancestors, right? Their mother didn't know if she'd, or their father, if she'd ever see them again. And then some years later, my uncle, my great uncle, great great uncle went back and married his childhood sweetheart and brought her to the United States. So they saw him again in a different way than he had left them, right? So this weaving of consciousness we have historically, we've done toward the future historically saying, if I leave the fire and go out as the man with my spear, I may get the saber-toothed tiger, but you might all be gone, dead, or kidnapped by the time I get back. So the man would leave the council fire, not knowing if it was all right to be vulnerable, ever, ever, 24 hours a day, to the woman, to the children, to the elements, to the other tribe. So Mary stating to Jesus, not talking to him directly, but to the other people, the servants. Whatever he asks of you, do. See, the spear came down. Now is the time. So as we face this, young people go, Mom, I don't know what's going on. I go, of course you don't, because everything you were taught was about that spear that left the council fire with the man and left the woman vulnerable 
and now it's come back and the sphere is placed down and the holy family globally is together and what story of a civilization shall we tell so that you and your children and the trees and the elements and the flowers and the stars are well so we're leaving the future not the past in our children it's a completely different direction than the way that we engaged our understanding of ourselves and when you feel you realize well, I wasn't taught how to do that we're usually taught what job do I have what if I lose it what if you don't do this what if you break your agreement with me we don't tend to say I will keep my agreement with you I will be present beside you tomorrow we will do our best on this day and then knowing the seasons and a relative planning for the winter and the summer in that cycle we can still have a harmonic whereas we face the future we are unafraid of the ecstasy of Plato facing the sunlight or the entrance to the cave or leaving the back wall of the cave and taking off his fetters and having the courage to turn and move and realize oh my goodness I had no idea the entire universe was holy and being revealed to me every breath as a gentle ecstasy of innocence so I could meet it in you and your wife and you and you and your family and you and your family and when we do this we have a multiplicity of experiences that can't really be described or defined but we understand them and when we meet them in another person and we are unafraid to allow heaven in them, we realize, oh, you as an individual in your portion of grace, beside me and my portion of grace, have something occurring through us and among us, and that is the water into wine, and that's the global civilization. It's not difficult, but it's cumbersome, un like unlearning the fight to become the nature of what is real. And then, is it an enlightenment? Well, the enlightenment of the Buddha progressed from his mind to other parts of his being, so it includes that. It includes the realization talked about in psychology as self-realization or God-realization in different South Asian religions. It includes the ideas of the ecstasies of Sufism and um, the practice of the saintly life that would be lived in um, the Sikh religion, the different traditions of Jainism or um, some of the Himalayan Bon and pantheistic traditions. It exists in aspects of Islam. It exists in the, the, the life of the good man or woman in Judaism, where God never destroys the world because there always are ten good men and minyan willing and able to meet in prayer before that which can't be named and the women beside them. So just when God's going to destroy the earth, he can't because he won't destroy those men, those women, the creation around them. Yeah, so what's happening now is it includes something of the grace present in every prophet and the women around that prophet who formed every tradition of our historical religions. But it's not about their theology, although it includes that respectfully but not when it's used as a weapon. So if someone uses culture or religion or politics as a weapon, I wouldn't say to fight back, I would say 
try to find the place in thought and practice and conversation with yourself or your colleague or friend where you meet. And when they can't do it in thought or articulation, just do it in practice with them. Bake bread with them. Go for a hike. If they start arguing, think, I don't need to argue about this. I love Moses, or I love Sarah, or I love Hagar. And then you you go on and they realize, what do you mean you're not going to fight? They have to lose their enemy too. So they're, they're still out there trying to fight for their family or their tribe or their culture or their religion or their country. So you show them the way by practicing it through all the things that really can't be thought or said, but which they will then come to know because of how you behave in virtue. Yeah, so the future, <clears throat> every once in a while you'll feel a quality as if you don't feel quite real. And you'll go, what is that? And I would say it's the ecstasy of the future. Um, just the way athletes learn to be you know, very comfortable with certain states of physical being. Mystically, most people are quite frightened of time. They associate it with dying or losing consciousness, like being asleep. And then if they let go of the weaponry of history, they won't exist, or they won't be important, or they won't be able to feel the reality of anything around them. But actually what they would find is the divine would come to meet them through the future, and then rather than worrying, am I eternal? You would realize, I am of an oceanic quality that we call God. I am of that, like a dewdrop of that. And then there's a fulfillment of that moving and that's you. You're, you're part of like a fulfillment of the stars or a fulfillment of that uh, quality we call time. Eternally, historically, in the present, toward the future. And then however you begin or end is not, is not your signature. Your signature is the security or trust of that state out of which you arise. That would be you. And then as you turn to the future, you'll find oh, I, I need to be turning toward this new nation, so to speak, that we're forming, the way people have done in stories we tell that are quite beautiful about our history. Right. So if we take our people we've known who've helped us in this, you might turn to people who were close to you in your upbringing. I, I wore a pair of earrings today that are made out of mastodon ivory. There are, there are, um, there are some places on the Yukon River where there are, are cliffs and... Um, some of the Eskimo and, and uh, Athabascan men will go down traditionally and, um, in the summer when the nights are long and come to the cliffs and kind of dig into them with a hoe or an axe and, uh, and they'll have pieces. If, if it's been an intense winter, <clears throat> the storms have been enough that it's worn them down and the dirt will have fallen away and pieces of mastodon tusk or bone will be sticking out of the cliff and they'll, they'll go in to bring it out and they'll bring it back for the old men to carve. So when I lived up there years ago, some of the men asked me if I wanted to go with them so I could have this experience. And I went down the river with them for a long night one night and back up. And so it was just a tremendously moving experience because they they were not bringing it for themselves. They just thought it's a beautiful day. We're going to go like 40 miles down the Yukon and you know leave at like one in the afternoon and we'll come back at dawn well, not dawn our time, it would, dawn there would be midnight, but like at six in the next morning, so the sun never really set or rose, so we were just up in the daylight, and uh, 
I think we saw two people in a boat the entire time. That, that it was a very remote area. <clears throat> and they brought back all of these beautiful pieces so two of the old men would have enough Mastodon ivory to carve for the next winter season. And they had all this joy. And so these are not from there. They were uh, ones in the last time I was up there, I was able to find them somewhere and get them. So the creature who was alive from which this comes lived how long ago? The earth from which it was taken, the native men who went to gather it, the geography of where they were, how they brought it to someone who carved them, how that was then given to me, how I brought them today so we would have history from before there were human beings worn on my body. Right, Long after I'm gone and, you know, 300 years from now if they exist, no one will remember where they were. They probably won't even know what they are. Right, But, but that creature of heaven from which they come is part of our history too in that land and then who we are. So that many years into the future, what will the cosmos be? This particular planet, what beings will live here? What is our aspiration for that to be? How do we live that as we embody it and we go forward? So two women who were working with me in these two villages, uh, Nulato and Tanana up on the central Yukon, up above the Arctic Circle, uh, wanted to come with me. Well, if you're going, we're going. And they were, they had a lot of fear about nature, even though they were both from uh, areas in the far northern Great Lakes area. And so when we were coming back from the cliffs, the boat broke down. And the two women became very frightened and said to me, oh my God, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to stay with the boat, you know. What if the men can't fix it? I said, we'll be fine. What if they can't fix it? What will we do? I said, we'll stay here in the boat unless you want to walk all the way home. It's very rough terrain. And what if a bear comes? I go, we'll push the boat off from the shore and drift out into the Yukon. But the, but the current's strong. I go, it's not that strong. We'll tie it off to a tree on the other side of the river. It was like they had about 50 questions, every single one of which was, what if there's a war? Beth, didn't you realize there's a war? The boat broke down. We're in the middle of the Yukon River. I go, isn't it incredible? I mean, what you would have to do to have a guide take you to the place where we were. And these were not women who were unaware of the beauty of the woods. They were so frightened that something was going to befall us that was horrific. Something horrible must happen. I can't believe these men didn't know more about boats. I go, they know all kinds of things about boats. This, I said, I grew up with boats. This stuff happens all the time. Well, they won't have any parts. I go, no, I don't think we're going to have any parts up here. What if nobody comes? I said, somebody will be coming along the Yukon in about a day, two or three days. We might have to be here for a few days. And one of them started crying. She was very upset. She was just upset. We were out of the frame of reference for the warriors of her ancestors to win the war. I don't know what to do to win this war. She did not know how to enter what the Hopi call the Great Peace. The men were fine. They were not cruelly entertained by one of the women. They were more apologetic that they were upset that they couldn't console her. And then one of them asked me if I had a bobby pin. 
like a little hairpin. And one of us did, for some reason, in our jacket. And he took a little bobby pin and a rubber band and a little piece of cardboard, and he finagled the engine and started it. And we were home within several hours. Right? So my father could have probably done something like that. Henry could have probably do something like that. And then the women were like, oh, good. Oh, thank God we'll be home soon. Right? So this, this experience of that night is etched on my soul. We saw a snowy owl coming down at like three in the morning in the northern, you know, the northern sky. The, the Europeans call it the white nights. We call it the land of the midnight sun. This incredible late June, early July sky, this huge snowy owl among these green, you know, far northern trees and out in the cliffs and then back. And so all of us are taught, what do I do if the boat breaks? What do I do if I don't know what to do next from what I did yesterday? You will never know what to do next based only on what you did yesterday. Never. You will partially know what to do. But what you are to do is to meet heaven, and then you take the next breath and step and go, Oh, I see. It is being revealed to me. The sunlight outside of Plato's cave is always being revealed to me in the next breath and moment, always. And then it's one's moral responsibility to meet that. That's your path. Nobody can take that from you. It doesn't belong to anybody else. It belongs to you. And when you embody that, you help fulfill every being, every human being, every sentient being, every modicum of creation in the whole cosmos is partly born, B-O-R-N-E, born, self-born, through your observation of it, right? Your attention is to it. So the idea that the observer and the observed have a relationship, when you are on your path, you are allowing heaven to be the water turned into wine everywhere. In every being, in you, it's never left us, and then you start becoming that. So as this child, the Jesus child, Juan, his name is Juan Gabriel in Argentina, will he be a farmer? Will he go to school? Will he be known? Will he be not known? As he turns, and is the same being whose mother asked the servants to, to attend, please tend what my son asks of you. As we see, what is that young man doing now? He who was once the son of Mary. What is he doing now? What is she doing now? What am I doing now? What are we doing now? And then we're at a point where it becomes a veritable symphony or a glorious painting or sculpture or garden or house. And then we become more and more maturely able to embody a kind of ripened human being. And much of it is led through the sensitivity and grace present in our children. How do we use the past to safely shepherd them through the seasons so they know how to be, and then all of a sudden they show us why they are here? Okay, I've told, my, I've told this story many times. My, my dad said something to me many years ago, probably in my early teens, about the world. And I said, well, dad, there's not going to be a world war. 
And he said, oh, honey, you're so naive. And I go, no, Dad, you don't understand. That's why we've been sent, so there won't be one. And I could actually feel him sort of looking out into the world, trying to perceive what I was telling him. And I could feel that he and my, my Uncle Jim, who had eight sons and, and was a PT boat commander, that they could not tell what I meant. They could shepherd me safely so I could then be their daughter, let's say, right? And so we can shepherd the young people safely, and then they become the first family of a global civilization. So there are borders, but not really, or there are continents separate, but not really separate. And then we begin to see, oh, oh, there's a revolution. There was the Industrial Revolution or the Renaissance or various eras. Oh, then, oh, then that happened. Then that happened. So the only difficult part would be in the space and time that would have been filled with the debris of the Third World War, it now has to be filled with the, with the Christ or with the Buddhic nature. So in anything you do that's prayerful or contemplative or where you're out hiking or you stand up on a hillside and look out over the town where you live or the ocean where you walk, just say a prayer for everyone. Maybe do something ceremonial, pick up a stone and take it home or set it down over a cliff, you know, above the sea or above a lake and just say, I wish this realization of the water into wine for everyone, including myself, and then go on. And that will sort of help set the course of filling that space. And then as humanity integrates this over the next 17 months, maybe, then a young person goes, oh, I can feel that there's a safe room around me, not a cave closing me in, but a form adequate for my body to feel alive and safe, the way we have the tent here, yet open, open to the rhythms of the cosmos, like we also have in the tent here. And then we go from being afraid to being willing, we go from being afraid to being willing to be who we are. We've not done, not done that before. And I think what the pandemic has brought forward is it brought our attention in to letting go of that quality in us that was artificial and was in a sense an artificial mask of not really meeting or we, we kind of came in and saw, oh, I can't touch you, or I'm wearing my mask, or a double mask, or not leaving my home, or not going to work, or not being out on a highway or byway. What am I supposed to do here? And it was like a, a dismantling of that state that is inauthentic. And then coming back out and saying, could we come forward and meet now? And, and find our way with one another. Yeah. I've told several people in the last couple of days, you know, we have, John will say to me, <clears throat> there are billions of viruses all around us all the time. And he said, it's imperative that we don't demonize this one. So we go, everything else is fine, but that one, get back from me. He doesn't minimize it. He's aware you can become very sick from this. But the idea that that takes over the sense of the meaning of the whole world is not healthy especially for our young people.
So walking through our world, we, we walk through life forces and life forms all the time, which don't harm us, or when they do, we have to find our way in, in a harmonic with them. So there's something about this that came forward, I think, to bring forward the whole shadow of ourselves and our history as a warning to not go that way. Don't go into the shadow you're sort of addicted to and identified with. We, we were so close to falling so badly. So in a way, the pandemic came as a blessing to call us forward from the war that we were falling into in our unconsciousness. I, I, I feel it as a, a great discipline and also, I don't think our consciousness alone would have done it. It wasn't, it wasn't succeeding. I had a little boy who's a reincarnation of Babaji, who's a great sort of father of yoga. He's, he's 17 this week, actually. He lives in the United States. And when he was about 14, he turned to his parents one day and said, what if the work Bath and others are doing fails? And his mother got in touch with me. She said, I didn't know what to tell him. And I told Blaine, well, if he's feeling that, it's very dangerous. He can't tell. Is it going to be all right? Is it not going to be all right? So I was aware, okay, we have something coming where I, we have to just roll our sleeves up a little further because he still is going to need us for a few more years before he's strong enough to, or mature enough to, to do the next step. So as the pandemic came in, people's attention was turned to asking the question, what were they supposed to do? And it's still turned to that. What are we supposed to do? And so uh, the virus from the pandemic in 1917-18 is with us annually all over the world, right? The flu. Every variation of the flu you can get is from the pandemic in 1917-18. The coronavirus of the cold has been with us for I don't know how many centuries mutated through the whole world. So we're very accustomed to them. And in the first year of the of the coronavirus pandemic here, the COVID pandemic, over 20,000 people died in the United States between September and December of the flu. So people go, I didn't know that because we don't publish that. So we're used to its virulence and the people who are weak in the immune system and die from the flu and we go, oh, we know the ebb and flow of that level of death. Oh, the colds, well, people don't usually die from the colds. And then as this came in, we went, oh my God, it's like this. And it's this, a little bit similar to the flu, maybe twice the level of deaths, four times the level of deaths. But that's because we learned from the flu, from our ancestors, how to have an immune system that knew how to be with that particular virus. My great uncle didn't. President Trump's father, grandfather didn't. They died from it. But my other ancestors lived, and then I'm here, and yours did, and you're here. So the same thing is happening through this that happened 100 years ago. And then we go on and kind of find our way through it. So these last pockets of the deep shadow of where humanity is corrupt, there's, there will always be some corruption, but the the trading that it's all right to be really corrupt. Mm, I go, Who, whoever said that? People go, it's okay to do this. I go, not, not to me. I don't think it's okay to do that to everybody. Because we all pay a price for it together.
So as we go through the collective decisions as a society of what to do with the corruption and arguments, and then the pandemic will resolve itself and we find the next step. But while that's going on, that debris is clarified in this next maybe two years, 17 months to two years. It's necessary for us to author the future. Uh, from eternity back to the present, how do I create a world and an ordinary life, yet of heaven, so extraordinary, yet ordinary? And study the past, so I survive, whether it's with the Eskimo and Athabascan, the Vermonters, the Texans, people anywhere in the world, how I survive where there's an equanimity of dignity among all human beings, and that the forms we structure of money, of power in government and faith and culture, education, couples, laws of marriage and family, education, service, that it has a, a quality of this, this nature of all of our paths, and that we each do our homework in it, and especially we shepherd our children to rise up and be the, be the languaging or alphabet of that. And then when we're old people, particularly those of you who are like in young middle age or your, your late years of young adulthood, you'll go, I, I remember when that happened. I remember the few years when we orchestrated that all around the world. I, my grandparents had a horse and carriage, an actual old black carriage with carriage lamps from their youth and got one of the first cars, my grandparents, right? My grandmother never flew in an airplane. It was my father who would be the first generation. So children go, really? I go, yeah, really, my grandparents had a horse and carriage. They did. I go, yep, they're, they were given 50 bag, bag, pound bags of grain on a, on a huge, you know, draft horse-driven wagon that would come up to the house. They can't, they can't quite believe that. That was not long ago. And then I have a brother who helped create the rocket fuel for the space shuttle. See, how did that happen? That's, that's in two generations. Okay, so in your children and grandchildren are the stars. The water into wine. And then when we shepherd that, all of a sudden, through their sensitivity, courage, and strength, they go, there it is. And it's not in them egoically. It's part of what's so scary. There always was war. You're a bad guy, I'm a good guy. No, you're a bad guy, I'm a good guy. I go, no, they're both good guys. We go, we don't know how to do that. I go, well, this is a new one for us. Because we all thought it was one, two. Good guy, bad guy. No, bad guy, good guy. No, 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 both, no, both bad guys. Sort of because I'm going to scold you now because I'm the mom and I'm the good guy. No, you're not mom. You're the bad guy and we're the good. See, it just would go around like this. Always a duality. You'd have to get it into what we call oppositional defiance. And then we'd feel real. Like a reality TV show that would be a negative center of attention. Do I have the negative center of attention for the stage or the magazine or the interviewer? And, and so people were so identified. Okay, okay, it's not safe, it's not safe. And they'd keep making it more and more the battlefield. So if, instead we got, well, we never do this before collaboratively. You mean it could succeed in my child and your child? I go, yeah, and then it would be a civilization. Which race would win? Which tribe would win? I go, the human race, the global civilization. 
respect to the black race, respect to the Asiatic race, respect to the Indo-European race, respect to the Hispanic race, respect be to the tribal native peoples. And then they each go, our woundedness is healed enough that we could get up and do this together. Right? So we compassionately care for one another and ourselves and yet find, oh, we are together, this child and this one, not mine better than yours, or this one wins and this one loses. We've never done it before. And then the nature of it is ecstatic, content. You can't quite feel the boundaries of your own aura, so you have to use your self-respect or your respect of others to give a boundary or a reality to individual form. Oh, it's you. Oh, it's you. Oh, I love your sweater. Oh, you're over there on the swing. That's great. You'd like the wine or you don't drink wine. You just allow a respectful sense. And then you have the future moving through you and you've come back to the, the fire of the ancestors. Oh, you saved us all through that horrifically difficult time that was so fearsome of wild animals and how we were wild humans to each other, so we could come together and realize this place of looking at the sun, looking at the whole cosmos. Yeah. When you're not comfortable with a more ecstatic quality, it's that that idea I used from Mary of you know what he asks you do or what he what he speaks of to you in act. You'll realize I can come, and whatever your religion is, you can still come with using a prophet or a figure or your, your own heart as a, as a resonance for that and the elements and the water that no one had seen but those offering the service. And then all of a sudden, oh, we've received the wine. <clears throat> you saved the best wine for last is always the phrase that's used. How did that come to pass? I go through our children, the best wine, the, the grapes of, of the whole earth. And then we start knowing how to caretake her. Then she can let us know how to caretake her, so that can happen. Yeah, that's been the hardest map for people to find. Yeah. So questions about anything? Is there anything you want to ask about at all? <clears throat> I have one question from earlier. Yes, yeah, Bob. You know, I, I was wondering that lately. I don't know. I saw him only once, Blaine and I went down when he was a baby, just uh, 16 days old, I think. And uh, is the child Juan, Gabriel, the Jesus child in Argentina, aware of who he is or what he's here to do? And I don't know. I, I Blaine and I met him when he was very little, and um, yeah, his mother and his family... So I don't know. I know um, if it does happen, I think it'll be, uh, I would just say I'm ready. Like, like if he came forward and they wanted him to have any kind of a more contemporary education, um, John and I offered that to the family if it were needed in any way or, or wanted or any help was needed from his grandmother and so his mother was 13 when she had him. We know Mary was 14 when she had Jesus. 
And um, he was born through violence. His mother was raped. So it came down into the shadows and back up into the birth of the child. And because he was conceived violently, the mother was protected by the police after the birth and taken to the hospital. And she, um, she was, uh, her family is from the Altiplano of Bolivia. So she's an indigenous person by heritage. So, and he was written down into the annals of <clears throat> the society. So he's a, he's a citizen of Argentina. It's so interesting. So when Jesus was born, he wasn't written into the tax records. They went to pay the taxes, and Joseph would have been declared, and Jesus wasn't declared. And in the stories that talk about Jesus having a twin, the older twin was taken away and protected, so he was never declared. It's just so interesting what we say, and there's no room at the end. We have this thing about there's no room at the end, or will we kill Will Abraham kill his son or not? But if he'd killed Isaac, Isaac was the second-born son, not the firstborn. So Ishmael never would have been killed. It's just interesting. So Isaac was willing to be killed by Abraham. And then they say God stayed Abraham's hand at the last minute. But Isaac wasn't the firstborn son. Ishmael was. So we have this movement between Sarah and Isaac and Abraham, we have the movement between Hagar and Abraham and Ishmael, and then between the two boys, Ishmael and Isaac. So the water into wine has always been present among people, but we'd go, look over this way, look over that way, and we would miss the point of the harmony among them. Yeah. So when he was taken to the hospital, uh, it's outside La Plata in Argentina, it's a city of about 500,000, he was written into the records as having been born, so his name and his his citizenship are Argentinian. There was a room at the end for him. Yeah, which is which was an astounding thing to me. He's been received. This child has been received. His mother is received. His family is received and honored. Yeah, and we, I've told a lot of people we for two years before I knew he was coming, and um, I just would know a family and ask them, would you consider getting two receiving blankets for a girl or boy? And would you consider an outfit for a 9 to 12 month old? And would you get one for a birth to 3 month old? And so about 40 families, I asked about 40 families for items so that we had everything a baby would need from birth to age 2. Everything you need except for diapers and nourishment. And so we went down with two duffel bags and just brought them to the family. So, like, who clothes the baby? Many people. Yeah, it's just...